I do want to wish you a happy new year. Last time we met, it was on a cold and frigid 2017 morning. Now it is a cold and frigid 2018 uh, morning that we gather together. I was reminded this past week uh, the story of a preacher, a lawyer, and a doctor who went hunting together. And sure enough, they all spotted this, this big deer, this big buck at the same time. They drew their rifles simultaneously, and the deer went down immediately. And they raced to the deer only to discover only one bullet had hit it, and they got into an argument about who the deer belonged to. And it got pretty heated, and the game warden came by, and he looked things over, and he said, well, it's easy to tell who the deer belonged to. The deer belongs to the preacher. And the lawyer and the doctor said, well, how can you tell? He said, well, only one bullet hit it, and it went in one ear and out the other. I like that better than you did. <laughs> Minister was teaching a class at his church, uh, and I heard him speak about it just this past week, called What We Believe. And the purpose of any class like that is to give basic doctrine uh, to new members or people that have not yet become a Christian. And often they'll take that class to find out fundamentals of, of the Christian faith and just to check things out. And one night before the class, uh, a college girl approached the minister and introduced to him a friend that she had brought with her. And she said, uh, my hope was that she would become a Christian the way that I did a year ago. But she has some questions that she wants to ask you first. And the girl asked him a question about evolution, which he did his best to answer. And then she wanted to know, why does God permit so much suffering in the world? And he did his best to answer her question. And then she had a question about, well, well why are there so many denominations all over the country or in the world? And he could tell she was asking questions not because <laughs> she had intellectual issues. She was asking questions because she'd not yet softened to the gospel, and she was looking for a way out. And so he challenged her, why, why don't you go and read this book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ? Once you've read that book, why don't you come back and, and then you and I can talk together? And she agreed to do that. And he then turned to the girl that had brought her to the church, and tears were streaming down the girl's face. She bit her lip and she said, I, I'm so sorry to cry. I just wanted to become a Christian so badly that I can taste it. Now I listen to that story and that kind of a story convicts me. When was the last time that I, that I wept for someone that I wanted to come to Christ so badly? What about you? When was the last time you genuinely cared for someone who didn't know Christ to the point that you wept about it, or you prayed for that person, or you invited them to come uh, to church with you and worship with you. It's in the book of Romans that, that the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 9, uh, 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ, for the sake of my people, for those of my own race. The Apostle Paul never lost his, his love for evangelism. He never graduated beyond his need to, to fulfill the Great Commission. He never stopped believing that the words of Christ could change not only his life, but the life of everyone that heard him. When Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned, he believed it. 
In the book of 2 Corinthians 6, 2, the apostle Paul wrote, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I heard a challenge and appeal from that this uh, past week. And, and uh, at our elders meeting, Bob asked a question, Bob Baird, about sharing your faith with others. And I thought this was a great time to, to connect the two. And I want to talk to you just briefly this morning about the urgency of sharing the gospel in light of a parable that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. Just as Mark was in Luke for his communion meditation, uh, I'm going to have you turn to Luke, the 14th chapter. And uh, this parable illustrates that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. The primary goal of the church is to lead the lost to Jesus Christ. And it gives us some helpful hints about how to do that. And at the end of this message, I'm going to challenge you uh, with that resolution for the new year that I heard, and, and I heard another minister give. And I believe if just a half of us were to take that resolution seriously, that it could make the difference down the road in hundreds of lives coming to be saved through Jesus Christ. It could make the difference in hundreds of marriages uh, being saved or hundreds of individuals kept out of the dark alleys and the hell holes of this world if we will just embrace the challenge that Jesus gives us in this parable. Luke chapter 14, verse 16 begins, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those that had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Now I want to stop there for a minute, and I want you to note that there's a comparison. The kingdom of God is like a spiritual banquet. I think that's an interesting comparison. And I know a couple of you, uh, you have dealt with banquets before. David and uh, Jeanette, they have done it for weddings and for other events. But how many of you here this morning, just, just a show of hands, how many of you have been responsible for organizing and preparing a banquet? Raise your hand. Okay. Let me phrase that a different way. How many of you have been responsible for fixing Thanksgiving meal for the family? All right, or a Christmas meal for the family. You know, for a good banquet, for a good meal, you've got to have two essentials for that, that successful banquet. You've got to have good food, okay, and you've got to have a good time. Now, we've all been to those kinds of banquets where the food can be fairly good, but the atmosphere is just dead, right? Or it's so stiff that nobody wants to go back. When Christians come together, we come together to have a holy time, a good time together. We enjoy each other's company. The Bible calls it koinonia, which literally means the shared life or the fellowship of the saints. I don't think the people outside these walls and in this world understand what it really means to have a good time as the body of Christ. Because for them, they look at believers as fun-hating legalists, right? Or mean-spirited judges who are waiting to bring down judgment upon them. But that's not the case. And people in the world think of coming to the church as, as a boring experience. Now we need to prepare, and we need to pray, and we need to be ready to acknowledge that, that being part of the church is meant to be a joyous supper. Back in the Old Testament, it was King David who said in Psalm 122.1, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go up to the house of the Lord. 
just before he died, our Lord said in John 15, 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. One of the characteristics of a healthy church, one of the characteristics of the church itself is that we know how to celebrate. We know how to live with joy. We know how to laugh. Because, you see, no matter what happens with investigations, no matter what happens in North Korea or in Jerusalem or Washington, D.C., no matter what happens in the sports arena, we have this hope that the Bible says can never be taken away. It will never fade, it will never spoil, and it will never perish. Our hope is a permanent hope, and we can have a joyous spirit regardless of what happens in 2018 looking forward. Acts chapter 2 verse 46 reads of the believers in that first church that every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You see, gladness and sincerity, they're not contradictory virtues. They go together. And when we come together as a church, we come together as a place where we enjoy coming to church, where the truth is spoken. And and when we do that with all of our heart, when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, when we love one another as ourselves, then we couldn't keep people away from being part of the fellowship. But there's got to be more than just joy. There has to be more. I listened uh, to, Bob Russell was one of my mentors in ministry, and he used to preach at the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. But he told about a time that he got up in the pulpit, and the people of this church, and we're talking thousands of people, they got laughing so hard, he couldn't bring them back to task. I mean, he could not calm them down. Uh, It was a Sunday night service, and he had slept through the service that he was about to be preaching in. And he had a lot of excuses of of what was happening. He'd already preached three times in the morning. Uh, He didn't have his sermon ready for that night that was supposed to start at 7. And so he stayed in his office in the afternoon uh, to work on that. And he had a funeral to prepare for the next day. And he worked on both those and he got them done about 6.15. But he said to himself, "I, I am just wiped out. It's 45 minutes till worship begins tonight. So he said, I'm just gonna lay down on my floor for a little bit and rest. He said in his mind, he told himself, I I think I'm going to sleep, but it's okay. You know, I'll hear the music. I'll hear people coming in. Somebody that cares about me, surely like my wife or someone else will come in and make sure I'm up and ready to go. He woke up. He looked at his watch. And first, you know, you wake up in that daze sometime. And he thought, is it Sunday? Yeah, it's it's Sunday. Uh, What's going on? He could hear the music. He looked at his watch. It was 7.35. Church started at 7 o'clock, and so he he scrambled to get himself together, splashed some water on his face, grabbed his notes, walked into the back of the sanctuary, just serious and composed like he had been counseling the mayor of the city or something. He walked up, and the worship director was there, and he meant to ask the worship director, uh, where are we in the service? Am I supposed to be doing announcements? Is it time for me to preach? But he was so confused, he looked at the worship director and he said, where am I? (laughs) 
He said, you're, you're in church, you're at the announcement time. And he got up behind the pulpit and he stared at the congregation for about 15 seconds. And he said, my mind went blank. Of all the things happening in the church, I could not think of one thing to announce. And so I just said to the people, I said, folks, I have to be honest with you. I fell asleep in my office and I just woke up and I'm barely here. And people started laughing and, and people were high-fiving because, you know, they weren't the only ones that slept during the preacher's sermon. He slept through his own sermon, right? And they were just so exuberant, he couldn't pull them back together. You know, do you think God in heaven that night, do you think he was, when the church was bursting out in laughter, do you think he was angry with the church? Because laughter is sacrilegious? No. Friends, God is not our enemy. God is our heavenly father. Parents, when you hear your children playing together, laughing in the next room, how does it make you feel? You love that. What you don't like is when they're bickering and fighting in the next room. And somehow I think when the church honestly laughs, when it's joyous, the heavenly father has a smile on his face too. But I also think, again, there has to be more than, than just joy. You better have some good food if you're going to have a great banquet. you got to have more than laughter. You better have some, some good things to eat or people are going to go away hungry. Bob Jones was a preacher at the Linden Christian Church. And he said when he was a, a young boy, he saw them put up a, a huge circus tent in a field close to his house. And he got so excited because, oh, I, I want to go see the circus. The only problem was he didn't have any money. Now, I know none of you would do this, but as a young man, Bob said, I went and I lifted the flap of the tent and I snuck in to the circus. He said it was the biggest disappointment in my life because it wasn't a circus. It, it was a tent revival that was happening. But he said, I'll tell you an even bigger disappointment. It's when I go to the church looking for a revival to happen and I see nothing but a circus. Ouch. See, those words hurt. And, and you've probably been in circumstances. I've been to churches, Cheryl and I together. I recall one church down in Cincinnati. It was filled with laughter. It was filled with entertainment. But there was no substance. And I walked away hungry and disappointed because the table had been set but there was no feeding from God's word. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was dealing with Satan? In, 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 in Luke chapter 4, he quoted the scriptures in Deuteronomy 8.3 when he said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And one of the strengths I believe that, that keeps this church going, even through the years, is that we have had elders, we've had leaders that, that truly believe in the inspiration and the power of God's word. We've had ministers and Mike Sergner and myself, every guest that has taken over this pulpit, believes in the authenticity of God's holy word. And friends, this is where the power is. And so when you come on Sundays, we want to make sure that you have been fed well. Jesus said himself in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So we invite people to a joyous place, but it's a place where people are going to be fed some things they cannot receive anywhere else. 
And yet in spite of this elaborate banquet that this host had prepared, he was disappointed when some of his friends canceled. I want you to see next that there was a cancellation. They began to make excuses. Now, most of you will probably know that back in that day, uh, invitations went out in two waves. The first invitation would go out, you know, I'm having a feast at a certain time. We'd love to have you come. Will you be able to attend? And the responses would come back, of course we're going to come. You can count on us being there. Then the host would prepare the banquet, the meal, and when everything was ready, the second wave of invitations would come. The feast is ready. Come and join us. And that's what's happened here. And these people at that second invitation, they back out and they begin to make excuses. Look in verse 18 of Luke 14. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Now, I don't think this guy bought a field sight unseen. Would you? I think this guy's in real estate, and, he, and he, he's got to go plot it out. He wants to know how he can maximize this plot of land to make the most money off it that he can. And I think this is an activity excuse. And you and I both know what that's like. There are so many demands on our time that, that it seems like people don't have time for church the way they used to. With overtime on your job, children's traveling teams and and your fitness program. Maybe you're caring for older uh, parents in your life, a taxi service for kids. There's just so much that you can do. One man said, you know, preacher, I've got a 10-hour-a-day job, seven days a week. I don't have time for church. And, And maybe you can empathize with him a little bit. Psychologists have ranked fatigue and time pressure as the second leading cause of depression among adults today. But the Bible says in Exodus 20, verse 9, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you're to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. It's a time to rest, and it's a time to worship, to celebrate. And what people of the world don't understand is we were made to function better when we rest one day out of seven. See, the world will scratch its head as people like Truett Cathy of Chick-fil-A or David Green of Hobby Lobby end up doing a better job than their competitors, and yet they close one day a week. It's because God designed it that you and I would not miss our spot at the family table, at the family banquet. Well, the second man says in verse 19, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Well, the first guy had an activity excuse. The second guy, he has a novelty excuse. He's got 10 new oxen, five pairs of oxen, and he wants to see how they're going to team up together, how they're going to work out. And you know what it's like, right, to buy something new. You get a new car, new boat, Uh, a new set of golf clubs. Maybe you sign the papers on a new condo, a new motorcycle, new RV, new video game. And and man, you got to try it out. I mean, besides, coming to church instead, it just seems so boring compared to something new like that. And I agree with someone that I heard this past week who said, you know, the church, not only do we face some pretty stiff competition from the world for our attention, uh, people did used to have a lot of, of free time 
There were days when front porches were used, you know. You go and you sit and talk with your neighbor. Maybe you play euchre with them. There was time if, if things were going on at church, a lot of times you'd have unbelievers come just because, you know, they've got free time. They want to see what's going on. And today, technology and travel, you know, it, it brings entertainment right to our fingertips. This past Thanksgiving, we were at the Jessamine Christian Church uh, with Wally Rendell. And, and uh, as he was teaching and preaching, there was a day, that day I had a cold, I couldn't sing, but I could just sit there as others were singing and look around. And there was this one family, dad, wife, and, and a teenager, and an elementary age child. The elementary age child was on an iPad playing a game. The teenager was on the iPhone, probably texting or Instagramming their friend. The mother was filling out her calendar for the week, and dad was actually paying attention to what was going on. Probably because he could, he could focus, since everybody else was occupied with something else. But why listen to a boring sermon when you could play Angry Birds, right, in, in church? Or maintain your social connections, and we pretend as though what we do here is the most exciting thing that's going to happen in your week. Now, don't misunderstand me. What happens here is the most important thing that will happen in your week. It will always be the most important thing. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews 10, 25. But it will not always be the most exciting thing you do in a week. It's hard, isn't it, to get yourself up early sometimes, admit it, on, on a Sunday. It's hard to get your kids dressed together, moving in the same direction. It's hard to get everybody piled in the car to be. It's hard to pay your bills on time and, and make sure that you're setting money aside for the Lord for a tithe or an offering. It's hard to deny yourself some of the carnal pleasures of this world. And people who are always going where the excitement is, they're like the man in this parable. I, I can't go to the feast because there's something more exciting I've got to do. Then the third guy, he makes my favorite excuse in Luke 14, 20. Uh, I just got married <laughs> and I can't come. I look at that as a family excuse. And honestly, I understand this one a little bit better than others. Uh, how many of you guys, if your wife looked at you and said, I'm not going to church today and I don't want you to go either, how many of you honestly wouldn't come to church? Uh, I am so uh, impressed when, I, when a couple can't come. Uh, you're going to get to meet today and in coming weeks, uh, Ken Markham that's here this morning. Uh, his wife, Anita, has been ill for the last couple of weeks. They've got a new grandbaby that's ill. He's here without his wife uh, today. That impresses me. When a wife comes without her husband, that impresses me. When I look and I find young people that come when their parents can't be here, I celebrate because they, they're getting it. They understand how important it is to be together as, as believers. But then I read 2 Corinthians 6.14, and I think of our family excuses sometimes, and, and Paul gives that strong teaching. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? You see, if you've got Christ-honoring convictions and you begin to date or marry someone who doesn't share those convictions or you're a dedicated Christian and you yoke up with somebody who's 
just a half-hearted believer, it's going to be a barrier in your relationship to your, to your loving Heavenly Father. Somebody said, if you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have trouble from your father-in-law. I believe that. Charles Swindoll used to say like this. He said, if, if you put on white gloves to work in the mud, the mud never gets glovier. Think about that. You ever hear people say, you know, I, I'm going to marry him and, and then we're going to get him where he comes to church. Or she'll come to church with me once we're finally married. I can't tell you the times, even through counseling, we talk about this verse and, and I hear that promise and afterwards, it just doesn't happen. That's one of the reasons our Father says, you know, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will be added to you as well. Well, all these shallow excuses disappoint the host and then he gives a commission because the Lord wants his house to be filled. Look at verse 21 of Luke 14. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. Now, I don't want you to miss the primary point of this parable. You see, we are the servants. We are challenged to to recruit with a sense of urgency because it's God's will that his house be full. And every Sunday when I come and we worship together, you look at the empty seats just like I do, and it's a reminder that our work as servants is, is not done yet as long as there is one person within the radius of this church, as long as there is one person within the radius of your home or your work that has not called on the name of Jesus, that does not know that God sent his son to die and pay the penalty for their sins so that they could be forgiven, so that they could receive the Holy Spirit, our job is not done. And I want to be honest with you. We're handicapped in doing this. We're handicapped in doing this because, honestly, most of us, we've been Christians for a long time. Now, why is that a handicap? Let me explain it this way. It was a fellow by the name of Mott Smith. Uh, He did a graduate study on evangelism at Hope University. And he discovered that in spite of all of our talk about evangelism and and missions and being an attractive church, that almost 70% of people who come to church and become Christians, they come because somebody invited them. Now, that's something you might have known already. But what his study went on to say is, it's not only important to invite them. Here's the interesting part. He asked people, who invited you to come to church? He found that 40% of people who did the inviting had been Christians for less than a year. And the numbers went down from there the longer they were a Christian. In your outline, this is the blank to fill in. And I want you to to meditate on on this with your Bible this week. Less than 2%, less than 2% of invitations to attend church are extended by people who have been Christians for six years or more. Now, how many of you have been Christians for over six years? Raise your hands. Yeah. Now, Now, do you understand 
why I believe we're handicapped. We are, we're an older church, and there's a blessing in that. But we're the ones who have quit inviting. We, we think that that's something we do maybe when we first become a Christian. Uh, and, and when we're first Christians, we've got more worldly friends, right, to, to invite. Or maybe the new Christian's more excited, and uh, we've become more spiritually isolated. We hang out with other Christians. We, we rub shoulders with people of the world, but we don't bring up controversial subjects or cultural issues. And sometimes we never go so far as to invite a person to come to church with us because we don't want to offend anybody. And so we reach a place where we stop inviting people altogether. So that brings me to this last thing. It brings me to, to three challenges. And I honestly say this is for the future of the church. I want to issue these challenges. The challenge really is one, but it has three pieces to it. The challenge is I want you to invite, each of you, one person to church every month. Now, I would say every week, but I want to be realistic. I want to challenge you to invite one person to church every month. Stage one of that is to be an aggressive inviter. Be an aggressive inviter. Some of you, maybe you haven't invited anybody to church for a year. In the church that I grew up in, I have to admire how they did things. As the youth group, we went out with the deacons who went visiting people door to door. So we learned as children what it was like to visit. And we learned what it was like to be in nursing homes and hospitals and and sometimes even do cold calling, which is still a very, very hard thing to do uh, door to door. But I always remember a guy named W.C., W.C. was a guy who was about six foot four, athletic, played on the church softball team, on city teams. I mean, this guy was a man's man. But W.C. carried on his person at all times cards that would say, if you meet me and forget me, you've lost nothing. But if you meet Jesus Christ and forget him, you've lost everything. And we would go places. And he would hand those cards out to people and he would say, I want you to read this. Tell me what you think about it. You know, and if it was a waiter or a waitress, sometimes you know, you'd want to get up and move tables because it was just so aggressive and intimidating. But in that course of conversation, they would come back and he would say, uh, so what'd you think? Do you go to church anywhere? And, would, and they would strike it up. And, and I thought, you know, I could never do that. I'm not that kind of an aggressive person. And maybe you're thinking, preacher, that's not me. Don't you dare give me a pocket full of cards to hand out when I go out to eat. I am not that aggressive. But let me tell you something. WC's over-aggressiveness brought more people to church than my over-passivity did pretty much my entire life. You see, he knew the value of sharing Jesus And it was just a very simple way that he had found and chosen to do that. Now, whatever you choose to do, you need to choose it according to the guideline of Titus chapter 2, verse 10, so that you can be one of those people who in every way make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I I heard one guy say, here's what you do. Uh, Most of you go to the same restaurants over and over again, right? Maybe you go to Applebee's. Maybe it's one of your favorite or Bob Evans. For the next three times you go, leave a 50% tip. And he said, after those three times, then ask the person, say to them, you know, you've been such a great uh, server, or waiter or waitress for me. You know, would you, would you go to church to me some, with me sometime? And he said, I'll guarantee you, you'll get a good reception. Uh, and, and I'll guarantee you that they'll go with you one time. 
Now, you might be poor, he said, because you've been giving a 50% tip every time. What's a soul worth? What's the salvation of one person in this world worth? It was worth the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Ben Merrill used to preach at the Harvester Christian Church in, in St. Louis, and he had a group of guys that in the summer they would load up their grill in the back of a truck, and they would go to the local park where the kids were playing uh, uh, Little League ball, and they would grill hot dogs and hamburgers there, and people would go by, you know, and say, man, that smells so good. Uh, how much for a hot dog? And they would say, they're free. They're from Harvester Christian Church. Love to have you join us sometime. And I thought, man, that, that's just a great way to invite people to come and, and meet Jesus Christ. Find a way. Be a more aggressive inviter this year. One person a month. The second part of that is invite people that are different than you. Now, that's going to challenge you a bit. But invite people that are different than you. Look at Luke 14 again with me. In verse, uh, let's, let's go back to verse 12. Jesus said to his host here, when you give a luncheon or a dinner... Don't invite your friends. Don't invite your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I love that. Invite somebody different than you. I'll guarantee you, there are people in this community that are suffering because of an addiction, that have no family that will even look at them anymore, that need somebody to show them the love of Christ. I'll guarantee you within your circle, you know somebody whose marriage is on the rocks and they're struggling. There are rich people in this community that have never had a Christian approach them because they're intimidated by them, but they're living alone or they're suffering under hospice care, and they just need somebody to, to, to tell them that God loves them. I'm tell you, if, if you invite somebody different than you to church, what we do every week, if you, and if you feel, I know what's coming. We follow the same pattern in church every week. It is so predictable. You invite somebody to come with you, and your understanding of what takes place in worship, it will change. You'll hear the service. You'll participate in a way you never have before. Here, here's the last thing. Be relentless and don't be discouraged. The first three invitations to friends by this man who formed this banquet were rejected. And the servant wasn't told, you did a great job. You covered the three that I sent you out to. You can quit now. Their job wasn't done. I want you to go and invite more people so that my house can be full. Let me, do we have anybody that, that worked in this world as a salesman? Anybody? What did you sell? Vacuum cleaners. Vacuum cleaners. Wow. Door to door? Oh, okay. What if somebody came and they said, you know, Carol, I want to buy a vacuum cleaner, and you showed it to them, and they, they said, well, no, I don't like it. Would you stop trying to sell vacuum cleaners at that point? Okay, because if you do, what are you going to have to do? Look for a new job, right? <laughs> because you're working on the affirmatives. Uh, who, else, who else worked as a salesman? Somebody over here? Anybody? <laughs> David, you worked as a salesman before. Selling? Kitchen equipment. 
And if somebody came to you and said, would you offer me? Uh, no, I don't want it. Would you stop trying to sell it to them? Yeah. Uh, Aaron's not here today. Aaron's going to start working selling cars. And I think just because I mentioned that, I should get a new car free, don't you? So when you see him, you tell him that. I'll guarantee you, when, as a car salesman, the first car he shows, somebody's not going to say, that's it, you don't have to say anymore, I'll sign on the dotted line. You know, 30000 bucks right here, let's do it. He's going to get rejection after rejection, but you don't quit. And if we do that for a job, for vacuum cleaners, for cars, for kitchen equipment, why are we so bashful to share that which we say is the most important thing in this world? We know who is the source of forgiveness, who's the source of life, who's the source of joy. He's the one that we get to share. I think we could be a little bit more uh, relentless in sharing him. Well, let me close with a story here. Uh, you'll, you'll see the sermon title and you're wondering, I don't see how that fits in. Uh, l- let me just say, the, the title is He Keeps Me Singing. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you recognize that's a hymn. It's a song in our songbook. It was written by a man named Luther Bridgers. Uh, Luther was 17 years old when he began to preach, and people told him, you know, you, you need to get a little more training in this. And so he went to Asbury Seminary down in Wilmore, Kentucky. And while he was in school there, he fell in love with Sarah Veach, the, the love of his life. And he and Sarah had three children together. Uh, while he was in school later in March of 1911, he got an invitation to go and preach a two-week revival near his in-law's home, uh, near Harrodsburg, Kentucky. He went to preach the revival. He left his wife and three kids with the in-laws, and he preached the revival. But then Luther received a call telling him that his in-law's house had burned to the ground and that his wife and all three of his sons had perished. Now, I don't know how you recover from something like that apart from Jesus Christ. It was... A year later that he wrote the words and the music of of this song, and I love it. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I'm with you. Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing and keeps me singing as I go. All my life was wrecked by sin and strife. Discord filled my heart with pain. But Jesus, he swept across the broken strings, stirred the slumbering chords again. One of the things at some point in life that we all share in common is those chords have been broken, the strings have been broken. We hear the good news of Jesus Christ and it brings us to the point of decision. At the end of every service, we have a time of dedication where we can say, I need Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. I want to turn my life over to him. I I want my sins that have been dogging me for all my life, I want them to be forgiven. I want to have the hope of an eternal life in heaven someday and not in hell. I want to know the truth of what a relationship with Jesus is like. Well, if God's pricked your heart to make that decision today, And I want you to come as we sing. But before you do, I want you to stand with me and let's pray together. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, I, I just want to thank you for a place where we can come and be authentic and we can be real. 
and we can worship you and we can feel you putting those new strings within our heart. We can feel you strumming those chords that haven't played for years and, and coming out with a new song. Now, it may not be one in the hymnal. It may not be one that, that we've sung before. But it's a song of gratitude because we have lives that have been made new, changed, transformed by you. Lord, I pray for the person this morning that is on the, the edge of making that decision. Whatever's held them back, whether it's their family traditions, the acceptance of their family that's kept them from being all in for you, whether it's a life that they just had trouble letting go of and they've been on the fence because they, they've heard of you, they know of you and they want to choose you, but they also want the life that they've lived. But Father, there's a way that seems right to us and your word says it ends in death. The right way is you. And Father, if they could be called Christians first at Antioch, we want to be called Christians here. So would you lead the hearts of your people as we, we sing the song of dedication in Jesus' name.